for our friends from Camp Bighorn. Thank you. They had an evening last night, a lock-in with teenagers here. And uh, the roof is still standing, so it couldn't have gotten too wild here. So thank you for uh, doing that and hosting that and being ministers to us. And I would encourage you also to check out the table. They have a lot of information. And if you have not been to Camp Bighorn, uh, just travel east on I-90, turn left at St. Regis, and then do another right, and you'll be in Camp Bighorn. So a uh, beautiful camp, beautiful place, great ministry, uh, not only to children and youth, but also to adults from time to time. So uh, that's an opportunity for you there. And also thanks to Dave for reading the passage. I spared him reading the first part of chapter 13 where it lists all the names and all the tribes. Uh, Dave, you did a good job. Nephilim, Nephilim, Nephilim. Yeah, just like I tell people, you know, when it comes to Hebrew names, just say it loud and with confidence and who's going to question you, right? So uh, uh, Hebrew is a very interesting language. We probably should be studying it because I think we'll be speaking it in heaven. I'm not sure, but it seems like it's probably the heavenly language. That's my opinion anyway. So uh, we come today, we are in a uh, series uh, that's really a non-series. Uh, these are a series of messages that don't fit into any necess- in, in any series necessarily, although I am detecting a theme as I uh, study <coughs> and prepare for each Sunday. And uh, so today we come to this uh, book of Numbers, and we'll look a little bit at Joshua uh, chapter 14 also. Uh, I gave you uh, a little blurb in the bulletin insert about J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips was a, a great uh, champion of the faith, a Bible interpreter. Uh, some of you may own a copy of his in- interpretations of different books of the Bible, the Gospels, Philippians, he's very famous for. Uh, but he wrote a book years ago called Your God is Too Small. <coughs> and it challenged me, but I'm convinced that's still our problem. Uh, that uh, we still have this uh, debate about the sovereignty of God in our own minds, perhaps. Uh, But uh, I asked the question, if we were to go around the room today and ask you, uh, tell me about what's going on in our nation today, I'm sure I would get lots of feedback on that one. Uh, How are things going in our community, in your family, in your personal life, uh, in our church? uh, How are things going, you know, and what would we say? And probably after probing you a little bit and and, uh, getting you to respond, you might say, well, uh, we live in a land of giants these days, and we're just a collection of grasshoppers. And it sounds like uh, the Israelites, the children of Israel, doesn't it, when they were facing going into what was the promised land. And uh, we have a pretty accurate view of the giants. I think sometimes we feel pretty helpless in life, in our society, in our culture, and some of the things that are happening so fast and the changes that are occurring uh, to us uh, as a people in this nation as well as around the world, uh, that it seems like there are giant adversities and giant obstacles out there for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We may feel like grasshoppers in the midst of that, but yet the most important question is answering is, how big is your God? How big is your God in the midst of crisis today? In fact, I've always wanted to use my phone up here, but uh, I was looking up the word. We throw around the word crisis a lot. Uh, You know, we have a national crisis, we have financial crises, we have Middle East crises, and I was looking at that word and thinking about what that word really means, and of course, we go to the internet to find that out, but uh, a crisis, and it actually comes out of a Greek term uh, that was used uh, clear back during Bible times. 
And it's an event, any event that is uh, or is expected to lead to an unstable and dangerous situation affecting an individual, a group, a community, or a whole society. Crises are deemed to be negative changes in the security, economic, political, societal, or environmental affairs, especially when they occur abruptly and with little or no warning. Uh, more loosely, it is a term meaning a testing time or an emergency event. Uh, in fact, there are people who study things like this, and there's a book that's been written by the authors uh, Seeger, Selno, and Ulmer. I have not read this book. I just read the quote here. Uh, but they, they point out they've done a whole study of what a crisis in our lives is, whether it's individuals or families or uh, communities or perhaps nationally or culturally. They say that crises have four defining characteristics, and they are that it's a specific, unexpected, secondly, and a non-routine event or series of events that create high levels of uncertainty and threat or perceived threat to an organization's high-priority goals. In other words, it comes as a total surprise, and I think all of us have had those moments in life, whether it's in our families, our workplace, our schools, wherever you find yourself, that there is an unexpected event that just ambushes us or blindsides us. It also creates uncertainty. You're thrown off balance. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I find uh, from time to time in my personal life something ambushes me, a circumstance or uh, people or whatever, and it throws me off balance for a while, and it's seen as a threat to important goals. You know, you're, you're going down a, a certain path, a certain uh, way, and uh, it throws you off of your goals. I think of one of the illustrations of that is uh, an account that's used in a book on counseling where, uh, for instance, you're walking down a road and you have a goal out there, and you're doing fine, it's a wonderful day, and you come to a bridge and you start to cross the bridge. <clears throat> and an individual runs up to you with a rope tied around his waist, and he hands you the end of the rope and then jumps off the bridge and says, save me, save me, save me, and all of a sudden you're holding on to this guy, and your goal is out there, and you had nothing to do with this, and yet you are demanded by the circumstance, the crisis of the moment, to make a decision, aren't you? Either to rescue him or to let go of the rope. And there are times where it is important to let go of the rope. And so we come today to some life lessons uh, in a crisis time of life. And we come to Numbers 13, and we come to an individual by the name of Caleb. Of course, you're very familiar with Caleb and Joshua. But I want to look at the life of Caleb and three seasons of his life, three seasons that are very instructive for each one of us as we move through life and face crises, when we face the crisis of courage, when we need courage, the crisis of consequences, and the crisis of choice. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for each one who is here, for this church family. I thank you for our guests who are with us here today. We praise you and thank you for the ministry of Camp Bighorn, and we thank you, Lord, for their presence with us here today, and we pray your blessings upon them. I thank you for each one here. I thank you for our children in the nursery and downstairs in junior church, and thank you for those who minister to our children, and we pray for them that each one would grow in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the knowledge and mercy and grace of Jesus. We thank you that you're with us here today, that you are the one who is the audience, and we are the worshipers. And Heavenly Father, remind us that your word is teaching us today, that your Holy Spirit can use it in whatever situation we are in life. And Lord, may we trust you 
for all things. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. So how do we, as ordinary people, live extraordinarily? Uh, As ordinary people who face things in life that everybody faces if you live long enough, everybody faces some difficulty, adversity, how do we keep a single-minded passion when there are so many things calling for our attention, calling for difficulties? What is really important in life in the midst of the crises? Because the crises is what tests us in the midst of crises. And so we learn lessons from these three snapshots, if you will, of Caleb, the mountain conqueror. And they're very instructive for us. I was looking through, I have a, a series of slides of, that my grandfather, Nock, took uh, back in the late 1930s and 1940s. And there are many other pictures also that I've looked at through these photo albums that my mother has. And I look at the stages of my grandfather, Nock's life. Uh, he, he was a student uh, at a university and uh, met his uh, future bride. And they got married, had children, of course. And all of us can identify with that. And in certain stages of life, he was a industrialist and a business owner and uh, then retired and lived some time and then finally passed away but a very instructive looking those pictures but here in the scripture it's like a photo album if you have some imagination and and we look at Caleb's life he's a very unusual figure Uh, Joshua is the, the general the champion when we get to the book of Joshua but here it's important to understand Caleb he's Maybe uh, one of my heroes out of Scripture, one that I would aspire to be like in a way, but that's only because Caleb was a man of faith and aspired to live out his life before God. And first part of verse 13, remember that this looking at the land, this is the promised land that God had promised clear back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. You will have land, seed, and blessing. Uh, Paul Mayhew covered that last week. And these covenants that God made with his chosen people Israel And so here in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Remember, he rescued them out of Egypt. They're traveling in the wilderness. They're in the far south in the desert of Paran. And he says, Send for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. And he goes on to tell them how to do that. You take one leading man from each tribe. So there are 12 men who go into the land to basically spy it out, to check it out. And so they travel up and In Bible commentaries, there's maps of how far they went up. They went up the hill country, basically through the central part of Israel, and then turned around and came back. And they found it really was a very abundant land, but it was full of other peoples. And we uh, heard Dave read about the Jebusites and all the Iteites that are listed there. And uh, there were plenty of enemies to the nation of Israel. But here in verses 25 through 33, when they return... Uh, There's this aspect where Caleb faces a crisis of courage. This is the first season of his life. He is 40 years old. Think about that. Caleb was born in Egypt during basically the 400 years captivity in Egypt. And Caleb, he didn't know about Canaan until this time, but he was 40 years old before God called him up through this event to check out the land, to be one of the leading men of Israel to lead this team up there. And in verses 25 through 33, it says they returned after 40 days, which is kind of interesting because by their rejection of going into the land, they will spend 40 years in the wilderness. And they came to Moses and Aaron. And uh, basically, if you've been through a walk through the Bible seminar, it says two said go and 10 said no. And uh, that's what happens here. But we Americans are enamored with majority opinions, right? 
uh, we think the majority is always right. Uh, and we can do that in churches and in national elections and in national uh, con conversations. When I was little, my mother uh, always told me, do not run with the pack. I didn't know what that meant, but then she explained it to me. Uh, don't submit to pressure from your peer group because that will move you down into their level. Speak up for your own beliefs and invite others up to your level. If you move with the crowd, you'll get no farther than the crowd. Simply swimming with the tide just leaves you nowhere. And finally, when 40 million people believe that a dumb idea is good, it's still a dumb idea. Remember that this election year, by the way. <laughs> so if you believe that something is good and honest and bright, stand up for it, and maybe your peers, your group of influence will get the right idea and drift your way as long as it's biblical. But here in chapter 13, we have seen, as Dave read for us, that they came back and all the spies agreed that it was a wonderful land. It was abundant. They brought back that giant bunch of grapes, and they had to carry them on a, on a, a, a pole between two men. It was so big. And uh, they talked about the milk and honey, as Dave described it there, all the fruitfulness of this land that they saw. It was very desirable. And yet uh, the ten spies said, nevertheless, uh, the cities are fortified, the people are strong. Oh, we can't go in there. And they brought a bad report. They brought a bad report back to the people. And what were the ten spies focusing on? In verse 28, they were focused on the strength of the enemy. Uh, how many times uh, are we called upon to do something? And yet, whatever the enemy may be, whether it's uh, finances or something else, we reject going after that. Our first thought is not necessarily of God. And uh, Moses was called to lead the people out of Egypt. In Exodus 3, he made up reasons why he shouldn't be the one to do that, if you remember that. He was looking at all the obstacles and left, instead of looking at the God who overcomes the obstacles. So they were looking at the strength of the enemy. They looked at the conditions of the cities. They were strong and walled and great and mighty, and it was uh, overwhelming to them. And they looked at the size of the enemy. The size is always the killer. Remember, these were, uh, some of these were called very giant people. And uh, we have many theological debates about what that means, but they were overwhelming. You know, Goliath evidently came out of this group, uh, and so they were overwhelming enemies size-wise. Have you ever noticed on NFL Sundays uh, when they introduce the team uh, that they never, you know, when everybody says their name in their college, and they never tell you what their IQ is. They never tell you if they can read and write, but they have their height and their weight. Okay, because that strikes fear in the enemy. And that's exactly what the ten, ten spies did. And the numbers, they focused on the numbers. It was filling with Israel's enemies. Uh, they were filled with the enemy. And so it's interesting that God, in writing numbers here, said they brought a bad report. And at the end of, uh, towards the end of uh, chapter 14, verses 36 through 38, he says, calls it a bad report again. Then he calls it a very bad report. And actually, the ten spies paid with their lives for not following the will of God. They died in a plague fairly quickly after these events occurred. You notice what the ten did is they magnified the problems and minimized what God could do. 
when we're in the midst in the crucible of adversity and difficulty and crises situations, what do we do? We magnify the problem. It gets bigger. We wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it's dark out, and we're lonely, and all of a sudden the problems just get bigger and bigger as we, we think about them. We magnify the problems just like the tended and minimize God. What they had done, they had forgotten on. They had focused on the miracles that God had already done, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea. Remember the defeat <coughs> of Pharaoh's armies? The Lord materially blessed them. He led them. He was with them day and night. And uh, sometimes God leads us on detours. We see him as detours, and yet he's working for his glory and for the good of his people. And the Lord met their needs even in the midst of the wilderness. And there are two ways of looking at any situation, any crises in our lives. God asks us to put one arm around Caleb, one arm around Joshua. Remember that in the midst, when they could have caved into the popular opinion, to the majority view, they stood firm in what they believed. And they looked at the wall cities, and they looked at the giants in the land, and they said, by God's grace, we can, basically. And they were absolutely confident that they could do it. The quality of your faith, by the way, is only as good, and it's always determined by the object of your faith. If you have lots of faith in yourself, it's only going to go as far as your own personal resources will take you. And in the end, all human flesh fails when it comes to push. Notice that Caleb did not minimize the problems. He agreed, yeah, there, there, there are giants in the land, but it's a good land, and God has told us Caleb did not minimize the problems of the giants and the fortified cities, but he magnified God. He knew that God had called him to do this. I've got to repeat Alan Redpath's writing on trust in a sovereign God. I mentioned it last week. I want to repeat it today because it resonates with my soul in whatever we face, together as a church, together as each family, individually, wherever you find yourself. Redpath writes, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. He goes on to write, write If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. I'd invite you to turn back to the Gospel of John chapter 17 momentarily here just to emphasize the point that Redpath makes about being in the hand and the sovereignty of God and his power and control. He's working all things out for his glory and for the good of his people is as impossible as it looks from our perspective. In John chapter 17, if you're familiar with John, this is a record of the prayer that Jesus prayed for his apostles, for his disciples, and also for you and me in the generations to come after this first century event. John 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have believed in him based upon the word that was written to us by the apostles and the prophets. 
and uh, that we believe in him. Verse 21, that they may be all one, even as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them also, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, and they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. I call that the, uh, the, the... the, the triple fortress or the triple safe, that nothing comes through that locked door unless it comes through the Father and the Son and me, and then unto me. And then I have the resource of the Son in me. Caleb did not minimize his problems, the giants and the fortified cities, but he did magnify God. He recognized where that is. So as he faced this crisis of courage in the first season of life, From time to time, we will face a crisis of courage in making decisions. Those are the instances where we stand for what is right, and yet we may suffer consequences. The second point of this message is when you face a crisis of consequence, and this is the second season of Caleb's life. He's 40 years old here. uh, We don't see him again until he's 85 in uh, Joshua chapter 14. And that's what is stunning about this. Because because of the people's disobedience, Caleb and Joshua both suffered the consequence of their sin. A good question to ask yourself is, what is my sin going to cost other people? Or what do I have to pay for other people's sin? I heard a message once entitled, what is your sin going to cost me? And here is an example of that. Caleb is not mentioned again until he's 85 years old. Can you imagine that? 45 years wandering in the wilderness, knowing, knowing that you're with a disobedient people and they would not enter the land. They could have entered that very day and they refused and God punished them because of their disobedience. And it's called the glory of the grind. You know, we like mountaintop experiences, but I have found that Uh, The Christian life is just a long uh, obedience in the same direction, to quote Eugene Peterson. It's just that faithfulness, that obedience, and the recognition. And Caleb must have recognized this, that I cannot change or control the choices of another person. And that that is difficult, isn't it? Whether it's in our own family, in the circle we are with, but yet I cannot change or control the choices of another person. Uh, Joseph Stoll, who uh, was formerly the president of Moody Bible Institute, uh, he said he was chatting with a man who was a consultant with some of the largest United States companies about their quality control. He was in charge, and he was the, the expert at quality control. And Joe Stoll says, because... Uh, Church ministry is uh, kind of like human quality control. I asked him about some insights. And this man said, in quality control, we are not concerned about the product. And Stoll says, I was very surprised at that. But this man went on to say, we are concerned about the process. If the process is right, the product is guaranteed. And that's relevant to our Christian faith. We tend to be more oriented to the product of our faith rather than the process. You know, if Caleb would have simply focused on the product of getting in the promised land, uh, he would be sorely disappointed at this point. 
And we as Christians, we tend to desire and demand products of righteousness rather than giving attention to the process that God has us in. If God is sovereign, all things in all places at all times are in his control for his glory and the good of his people. So this crisis of courage and crisis of consequence always lead us to a crisis of choice. Life is full of decisions and choices. And how does this look in the midst of difficulty? Turn over to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14. In verses 6 through 15, we see Caleb in his third season of life. He's 85 years old now. He has spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering with the Israelites, and there's been about five to seven years of the conquest of the promised land. This is a battle-hardened man, Caleb at 85. And when we face a crisis of choice, we can see here in these verses that God can turn tragedy into triumph. Look at verse 6 of chapter 14. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kinzonite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke His word, this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still strong today I was in the day Moses sent me, as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country which, uh, about which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day that the Anakim were here with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. And so Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Uh, Hebron is about uh, 23 miles south-southwest of Jerusalem, it's the end of that ridge of mountains that uh, go down the spine of Israel there. And uh, that was the very place that uh, basically the ten spies gave up and lost their, their uh, courage in that. And yet, here comes Caleb. He has a crisis of choice. At age 85, he could just, just sit back and tend a garden and grow some grapes and enjoy life. And yet he wants to conquer that one more mountain, that one last thing that had been promised to him. Uh, I've been told that death begins for us when our memories are more powerful than our dreams. Death begins for us when our memories are more powerful than our dreams. And we see Caleb here. He still has big plans at age 85. You know, there's a, a in sports, in sporting events, there is a, a uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a a problem with young athletes, they develop what is called a loser's limp. A loser's limp. Uh, J.K. Summerhill, who wrote about this, said, a player will often develop a limp in order to have an excuse for not doing better. There's not an injury, there's just a limp. Without the limp, he'd have to bear the responsibility of poor performance. That is more painful than faking a limp. 
And, you know, there are Christians uh, who surround us, whether in this church or other churches, that uh, maybe have developed a loser's limp. It flares up whenever it seems necessary. Uh, They might say, God can't use me because, and then you can fill in the blank. I would have been financially faithful, but fill in the blank. I've attempted more. I might have attempted more for God, but, and there's uh, these excuses. Notice in verse 11, he's really talking about not his physical strength, even though I'm sure he was very physically fit, but about spiritual strength. Courage is more than bravery. Courage has a moral component. If God calls me to the task, that is what I shall do. And that's what Caleb, that's what he aspired to, and that's what each one of us should aspire to. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what are you trusting God for today? What can God do in the midst of your crisis? Perhaps you're in the midst of a crisis right now. Perhaps life is pretty smooth for you right now. But the the issue is, is when problems come, when difficulties come, are you magnifying your problems and minimizing God, or are you magnifying God in the midst of those problems? So when we face a crisis of life, be courageous, live with the consequence, make correct choices. But the key here is what's the lesson that we learn? What is the lesson? What is the secret if there is a secret to Caleb's life? What made this man tick? He was just an ordinary man, obviously one of the leaders of his tribe. He was used in extraordinary ways. The scripture provides us with three testimonies of why Caleb was the way he was. First of all, Caleb's own testimony in Joshua 14 here, where he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh where to spare out the land. And he talks about those other 10 spies who made the people's uh, heart melt. But he says, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Moses had a testimony in Numbers chapter 32 about Caleb. He says uh, that none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me fully. This is God speaking, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. The third witness is God himself in Numbers chapter 14. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land. In that 40 years of wandering, the whole generation died out except for Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two who had left Egypt who entered the promised land of Canaan. And so the key is is that five times in Scripture, he is described as a man who followed the Lord fully. The testimony of Caleb and Moses and God all agree. Remember in the Old Testament, by two or three witnesses is a matter confirmed. And Caleb followed the Lord fully all his life. That is his legacy. I want to close with an account of uh, a man who followed the Lord fully from history. Uh, Every Christian ought to be able to stand up courageously and unashamedly for the Lord when we come to those decision points and those crisis points in our lives. Frederick the Great of Russia invited some notable people to his royal table including all of his top-ranking generals. And one of them, by the name of Hans von Zieten, declined the invitation because he wanted to go to church and partake of communion at that day. 
Sometime later at another banquet, uh, Frederick the Great and his guests mocked the general uh, for his religious scruples and made jokes about the Lord's Supper. In great peril of his life, the officer stood to his feet and said respectfully to his monarch, My Lord, there is a greater king than you, a king to whom I have sworn allegiance even unto death. I am a Christian man, and I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored and his character belittled. It is reported that the guests trembled in silence, knowing that von Zieten might be killed, but to their surprise, Frederick grasped the hand of this courageous man and asked his forgiveness and requested that he remain. He promised that he would never again allow such a travesty to be made of spiritual things. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning for 